Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks Church. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. I want you to know that whether you are a first-time guest or maybe you're still new joining us this morning, we are really grateful that you're here to worship with us. Um, If you call the Oaks Church home, we're thankful that you are here again this Sunday as we gather for worship. We're continuing through the book of Mark. So if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Mark 14. Um, If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would love to give you one. Uh, So after the gathering today, just meet me at the Connect table in the back. I'll give you a copy of Scripture uh, for yourself or or for a friend. Um, Also want you to know that if this is one of your first times gathering with us and you haven't received a guest bag from us, we would love to give you that as just a, a small gift to let you know we are so thankful that you're here. So grab one of those from the Connect table. Come by and meet me before you leave today. Now as we look at Mark 14, uh, we're going to see this just amazing act of worship, uh, three different responses to Jesus. And really, as, as we see the events of this passage unfold, uh, what we find is that part of being human is assigning worth to things. Uh, this week, just out of curiosity, I looked at what a current price of a Super Bowl ticket would be. Uh, You know, because I mean, hey, there's a good chance that some of us in the room might want to be there, depending on how things go later today. And so the question is, uh, what is a Super Bowl ticket worth? What what is that experience worth? And the price ranges anywhere from like $5,000 all the way to like $40,000. So if any of you guys like want to bring me with you, just know the answer is yes. Like I'll clear my, I'll clear my schedule. Uh, now, now, we do that in all kinds of ways, don't we? I remember whenever uh, I was, you know, whenever Abby and I were meeting with a realtor to try to figure out, you know, uh, what house to buy. And we were going to different places. And I say, okay, so just level with me. Like, what is this place worth? And he said, this place is worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it. I'm like, that is not helpful, but probably extremely accurate. Uh, you know, I mean, if, you, if you've followed the real estate market, you know that that's kind of how it works. And so as humans, we assign value or worth to something in, in all kinds of ways. Uh, sometimes we do it with money, like the examples I just mentioned. Sometimes we do it with time. Uh, so, you know, what, what takes the most time in our schedule? Uh, who are we willing to give the most time to? And so we're saying, this relationship is worth a lot to me. Uh, we also assign worth through sacrifice, right? Because anything that, anything that you are choosing to prioritize is taking priority over something else. And so in contrast, you can see, okay, this is something that is obviously worth a lot to this person. Uh, the amount of attention that it gets, or the way that you celebrate Right? I mean, if any of you are a parent and you know, your child walks for the first time, you would think just by looking at that new parent that no other human being has ever walked before like in the existence of people because they're like, hey, look at my child just walked. You know, like you're, you're posting on social media and you're sharing with friends and you know, you've called grandma and the whole deal, right? We, we celebrate things that are worth a lot. We spend a lot of money for something that is worth a lot. We give a lot of attention and effort to something that is worth a lot. Now, the interesting thing is that idea of worth is the root of where we get our word worship. Whenever we worship something, someone, what we are saying is that this thing or person is of great worth. And what we find in Mark 14 today is that Jesus, above all, 
uh, more than anyone else, far more than anything else this world has to offer, is worthy of our worship because he is of great worth. And so my desire is perhaps to remind you of that, to encourage you in that, for some of you to convince you of that in the time that we have together. Uh, we're going to see a, a woman who bestows great honor upon Jesus by declaring that he is worthy of worship. So if you were to summarize our time together in a simple sentence, it would be this, that Jesus is worthy of our worship, but not all will. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Worship is a noun. It's, it's something that you can see in our lives. But we also know that not all will worship Jesus, taking it as a verb. Not everyone will see the immense worth that Christ has. Not everyone will acknowledge the worthiness of Christ to be worshiped. And so as we kind of look at these three different scenes in Mark 14, 1 through 11, it's almost going to be a passage that causes us to reflect on our own heart a little bit. If we were to just kind of lay this passage next to our priorities, our schedule, our affections, do we see that Jesus is worthy of worship? Do we see that he is of great worth in our lives? Now, before we get into reading this scripture, I want to set it up for you just a little bit, uh, because the thing that Mark does here is really unique. He does uh, this technique that he often employs. It's kind of a, a literary device that's called an intercalation, all right? So let me just explain that a little bit. Um, an intercalation is whenever Mark is going to take a story, and he's going to break that story in half, and then he's going to put another story in the middle of it that is designed to help you see why the story in the middle is such a big deal. Now, I'll help you understand this like I was brought to understand this in seminary. It is also called a Markin sandwich. And for me, I'm like, I can get sandwiches, all right? You start talking about literary devices and intercalation, I'm like, you know, what's going on here? But as soon as you say, like, the one piece of bread is the religious leaders that are plotting to kill Jesus. The other piece of bread is Judas betraying Jesus. And then the turkey and cheese in the middle is this beautiful story of this woman bestowing worth on Christ. And you're like, great. Like, I know exactly what Mark's doing here. All right, so, so here he is. He's crafting this sandwich for us. And, and he is going to present the, the kind of dark, behind-closed-doors, um, almost, almost unseen, hidden, trying to plot this death of Jesus by stealth. So, that, so that's going to happen in the beginning. And then we're going to be brought just quickly from that scene into this dinner party where people are celebrating Jesus, where he is the honored guest. And then we're going to see this woman make this costly sacrifice of perfume upon Jesus to anoint him specifically for his burial. And, and it's just going to be showing the worth of Christ. And then we're going to end with, you know, right after that sacrifice, Judas, one of the 12, one of his dear friends, betraying him for a measly 30 pieces of silver. And, and so what we want uh, to walk away with here is, is really asking the question, is Jesus of worth to us? Do we know that, that Jesus is of great worth and to be worshiped? So with all that being said, I want to uh, just read verses 1 through 11 together, and then we'll kind of look at these three different groups of people. Verse 1, chapter 14. Now it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. 
And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, being Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, changing scenes, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the first group of people that we see here is those that oppose Jesus. So as we look at three different responses to Jesus, the first is that some will oppose Jesus. Now, Mark has quickly changed from the last scene that we saw in Mark 13. Because whenever Mark 13 is ending, what we find is that Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. They're overlooking the temple. He had just told them about how the temple would one day be destroyed. Uh, The sun is setting behind the temple, and he is charging his disciples with the command to stay awake. Be ready. Persecution is coming. Be ready. The days ahead are going to be very difficult for you. And then, just kind of without notice, Mark brings us behind closed doors into this meeting where the chief priests and scribes are seeking and plotting to kill Jesus. Now, there are a couple things that we see here is that this is not just kind of a new revelation for them, but since Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, they have been seeking a way to kill Jesus. And so it doesn't seem that they have a plan yet. Um, They're trying to devise a plan, but don't have them. Now, the ironic thing is that we're going to find that they receive a plan from one who came from the 12, from a dear friend of Jesus. Uh, they, They have a couple hesitations here. They want to seek Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, this is where the context of this passage is extremely helpful for us, because what time of year is it? Well, we're told right there in verse 1 that it's two days before the Passover. All right, so this is most likely Tuesday or or Wednesday before Jesus is going to be crucified. Now, it's, it's important that it's two days before the Passover because the city of Jerusalem would look very different this week. Why is that? Well, because in in the religion of Judaism, there were three festivals that all Jewish males above the age of 12 uh, committed to to going and worshiping in Jerusalem, celebrating these these feasts, these meals. Um, One was Passover, and the other was Tabernacles, and the other was Pentecost. So everybody would have, you know, really been coming into the city during this time. The the city, the size of the city uh, was typically, you know, maybe 50,000 people in population, Uh, but it's estimated that it often tripled during Passover week. There are some instances in which it grew by five times the size. So a city that normally has 50,000 people in it, and you're talking 250,000 people crammed into the city. 
Now, that's important. I mean, if you think about going downtown for a celebration like Red's opening day parade, or if you've been to an event like Blink, and it's like the walkways are crowded, you know, it's like hard to get anywhere. The capacity of this city has been stretched to the max. And, and this, this is whenever all of this is going to take place. Like this is happening Passover week when Jesus is going to be crucified. But, but here we see that there's hesitation by the chief priests and scribes because they're saying if an, if an uproar happens during this time, if a riot was to break out uh, during a time that the city is this crowded, it could, it could be disastrous for us. And so they're saying, okay, we kind of, we need to do this quickly, but we also need to do this in a way uh, that is not going to cause an uproar. Because at the beginning of this week, remember, while, while the chief priests might be opposed to Jesus, there were those that were waving palm branches, declaring Hosanna in the highest, saying that Jesus was the messianic king that had come. And so they're threatened by Jesus, they're opposing Jesus, but they, they're trying to figure out a way um, to maybe let the crowd leave, that kind of thing, uh, before all of this comes into play. A riot in these conditions would be disastrous. Now, it would also be a threat to their political power. It's interesting, right, as the story unfolds, looking at history, seeing the context here, uh, that, that because um, there was so much nationalistic pride around the week of Passover that a political leader like Pontius Pilate would have been on edge, so he would have come into town. I mean, think about it. Uh, what is the story of the Passover? We'll get into it in details kind of from the, the atonement redemption end of things. But, but think about it from like a guy like Pontius Pilate's perspective. All right, there's this story that is being told about this oppressive Pharaoh who is, you know, ruling over the people of God. And then God does something through the Passover. And now the people of God are set free and they are no longer under the rule of this pagan government. All right, so if, if you're Pontius Pilate and you know that there's gonna be 250,000 people in this city that are all, you know, basically celebrating what would be like their 4th of July, then, then you're thinking, all right, I need to go from Caesarea to Jerusalem just to keep an eye on things. Now, the, the religious leaders know that they're operating in a pretty delicate tension here. Uh, because on one side, they have Jesus, who um, is, is saying, I'm the Messianic King. And there are people who once looked to them that are now saying, oh, we're, we're following Jesus now. Like, he is, um, you know, who he said he would be, and, and we're following him. But then on the other end of things, you, you have them saying, but if we, if we do too much, too fast, even though we want to act quick, then the power that we do have will be stripped away from Rome. They'll come in with their legions of people and, and they'll just say, you know what, if, if this is how things are going to work whenever you, know, you guys have this amount of power, then we'll just completely take it all away. And so here they're trying to operate, like devise a plan, figure things out. And what I love about this passage is that it reveals that God has had a definite plan before time began. Like God is planning what he did in Egypt with Pharaoh and with an unblemished lamb to ultimately point to this day in which he would reveal the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. Like he is orchestrating all of this so that there would come a moment in which everybody says, oh, Christ is the one who redeems. Christ is the one who has shed his blood to take our judgment and to set us 
free. I'm reminded of Peter's sermon, right? You know, Peter, who is about to deny Jesus, will soon be filled with the Spirit and then become one of the boldest proclaimers and preachers of the gospel. And this is what he will say in his sermon in Acts 2.23. He says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God would not be threatened by the power of Rome or power-hungry priests. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God would happen in the exact timing that he desired so that the whole world would look upon Christ and see that he is the one who redeems. I mean, we can't help but look at Passover and begin to make some of the connections. What is being celebrated in the week of Passover? Now, the exciting thing is if you're going through the Oaks Bible reading plan, we're, we're about to read through this together this week. We finished Genesis on Friday. We're about to go into Exodus. If you're not doing the Oaks Bible reading plan, but that sounds like something that would be exciting for you, here's just my quick advice, and then we'll jump back into the text. I, I would say, hey, go listen to the Bible Project video. Watch the Bible Project video of Genesis, just so you kind of have like a, an idea of what's going on there. Then jump into Exodus with us tomorrow catch up with the four chapters of Galatians that we're in, read Galatians 5 tomorrow, and then just begin through Exodus. You can, you can go back and read Genesis sometime, maybe over the weekend or, or something like that in the coming weeks. But now I want you to read this story with your own eyes. Because as you begin to read through Exodus and see the, the plagues and the way that God is speaking to Moses and raising up Moses, it's almost like the, the tender heart of God and the justice of God and his like strong arm to rescue his people and his compassion and the steadfastness of his love, it's like jumping off the page. I, I love the book of Exodus. And, and here you see this, you know, this beautiful plan that God has created in the Passover where, uh, you know, just to kind of remind you of the story, you have Joseph who, you know, brought the family of Israel uh, his father, and then, you know, the tribes, the 12 tribes, they're all in Egypt. And, you know, Joseph had such a great legacy there that, you know, he, everybody treated them favorably. But what happened is, you know, new pharaohs rose up and they began to be threatened by the, the huge amount of people that were a part of this, you know, Hebrew group. And so they began to oppress them and place backbreaking labor upon them uh, to the point that, you know, they're, they're living in slavery. And God hears their cry. He raises up Moses to be the deliverer in uh, just a way that I'm excited for you to read this week because we don't have time uh, this morning. But then he, he tells him to go to Pharaoh and to command Pharaoh to let the people of God go. And Pharaoh's hard-hearted. He says, I'm not going to do it. And then uh, God brings about 10 plagues. Now, the 10th plague is the origin of the Passover, the feast that was being celebrated during this time. And we know that the 10th the plague, whenever Moses threatened it from the mouth of God to Pharaoh, he said that if you do not let the people of God go, then the angel of God will pass through the city and, and he will take the life of every firstborn in every home. Now, Moses, hearing this from God, then hears the instructions. Now, Moses, so that death does not visit the home of the Israelites, of the people of God, you need to sacrifice a male unblemished lamb. 
completely innocent, no spots, sacrifice that lamb, and then take some of the blood from that sacrifice and, and wipe it on the two doorposts and the lintel above the home. So whenever the angel of death is bringing the judgment of God upon people that are sinful in the city, it will look upon that door, see the blood on the doorpost, and pass over that home because he has seen that there is a substitute, that judgment has already come to that home. So there is no judgment, there is no wrath to be worked out upon that home. Well, what happens? Just as God said it would be, it, it came to pass. And Pharaoh wakes up the, the next morning, finds that his firstborn is, is no longer alive. And, and then he immediately says, let God's people go. Now, uh, for every person that had the, the blood over their doorpost, not, not a single hair was touched. Uh, they, they then are, are set free. They go free. And, and this celebration of the Passover has begun. God said, even, even before it happened that night, he said, I want you to institute this as a part of, of, of what we were, of, of way, of way we celebrate this redemption for years and years to come. Practice this year after year, every year to be reminded of the redemption of God. Now, now this is amazing because what we see here is the seeds of the gospel that will be worked out by Christ. Uh, that, you know, even if people were not able to make the connection on, on this week, that we can make the connection now. As those who are on this side of the cross, we recognize that we deserve death. That we too, just as, just as Pharaoh had, uh, just as the, the Israelites that had idols on their mantle, we have sinned against God. And because of our sin against God, we are separated from him. Now, we are to be treated as enemies of God. And yet in his grace and his mercy, he sent a substitute to rescue us and to redeem us from our sin. That Christ came completely sinless, being unblemished. Him being uh, the very son of God. And yet his blood would be poured out to atone for sin, to redeem us from sin, to forgive us from sin, to be our substitute. And we know now on this side of the cross that we need that blood not painted upon our homes, but upon our hearts that we might be saved by identifying with him and saying the, the wrath that I deserve was placed upon Christ, that now I am made right. I am justified because what Christ did in my place and the only hope I have for salvation is in what Christ did for me, that the wrath of God would pass over me because it has already been poured out upon Christ. Isn't it interesting that these enemies of Christ thought they could keep this silent. It's almost ironic that they say, well, okay, let's just keep this under wraps so there won't be an uproar among the people. 2,000 years later, we would say there's been quite the uproar. Oh, we would say that hearts have been changed, that, that God has reshaped generations, and they thought they could keep this silent you can't keep the grace of God silent. You can't keep the work of Christ silent. He is the exalted king. So much so that 2,000 years later, there would be a group of people gathered in the Madisonville Rec Center to give honor to the one who is our Passover lamb. And yet some people would miss it. Isn't that what we see here? There are those that oppose Jesus. Uh, 
perhaps rather quickly, this would act as a warning, a caution, maybe even help you think about the way that you would interact with some of those that you love dearly who would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus and not necessarily concerned to be one. One of the traits of those that oppose Jesus is that they are opposed to Jesus's authority. Here we find these chief priests, they're they're threatened by the authority of Jesus. They've been waiting on the Messiah and now he is here and they want anything but him being in control. They're motivated by self-preservation. If you're here and you're wrestling with the gospel, could it be that it's not the truths of the gospel? Could it, could it be that uh, you're, you're not so much trying to wrestle with the reality of the bodily resurrection, but you just don't want to relinquish control of your life? And so you'd say, no, I'm, I'm not gonna follow Jesus. Maybe, maybe you would say you're distracted by selfish, selfish ambition. I mean, think about this. It's Passover. These are the chief priests. They're the religious leaders. Uh, it, it would be like one of our pastors just kind of like forgetting that it's Easter. You know, like, oh, like, was that today? Like, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. And yet, what are they doing? They're having this meeting. They're bringing all the guys together. And it's not like, man, how can we make this year's Passover celebration just a great time of celebration and remembrance for the Lord? They're saying, how can we take out this guy who's fulfilled every single prophecy of being the Messianic king? They're, they're motivated by this selfish ambition. They're distracted. I mean, honestly, we're easily distracted too. My question for you is, what, what are you doing daily, weekly, monthly, annually to not be distracted by the allure of the world or, or the things that might take your eye off the Lord? Here's the good news for God's enemies. In Matthew 5:44, Jesus had preached to love your enemies, and on the cross, Christ had shown the truth that he loves his enemies. Oh, we're not trying to throw stones whenever we talk about those who oppose Jesus, because we would all recognize if we are Christians, that was once us. Romans 8, 7 says that the mind is, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And I know that I was once there. And if it was not for the grace of God opening my eyes, I would still be there. And so my invitation to you right now, if you'd say, you know what, this has never made sense to me. I don't really know what it means to follow Jesus. Kind of feel like I need to clean myself up before I can follow Jesus is to simply say, Christ has come to reconcile you to God the Father. You were created for that relationship. So trust in his work and repent of your sins that you would have life in his name and you will join a group of people who confess the same thing. I was once an enemy of God and an orphan estranged to him and now I know God as a father and he has drawn me in. That's why Romans 5.10 says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And we hope in nothing else. So we see those that oppose Jesus. We also see that there are those that worship Jesus. Some will worship Jesus. Now, Mark abrupt, abruptly shifts scenes here, uh, leaves this meeting that's going on, and then goes into kind of this dinner party that's taking place. Uh, now, the interesting thing is it was two days before the Passover, whenever the meeting was happening with you know, the chief priests and the scribes. This most likely did not happen at the same time. 
And I want to walk through that with you just for a moment, because uh, what we find is that in Mark and Matthew's accounts, they place this right here, okay, two days before the Passover. But in John's account, he says that this is taking place six days before the Passover. He puts it right before the triumphal entry. And so we're like, well, what's going on here? Well, I think it's important for us to understand uh, two things. One, the way that ancient writers wrote, and two, the way that the Holy Spirit has, you know, put Scripture together. So first, ancient writers often wrote thematically, right? Mark does this several times throughout his gospel. He's creating these sandwiches to create a uh, contrast so that as we're reading the story, we're like kind of moved in two different directions to see the beauty of Jesus. And so it was very commonplace for an ancient writer to write thematically uh, to kind of help the reader understand what's going on. Um, and the fact that, that it might not be chronological is not an issue because they're presenting events as they took place. Now, John, he's writing as an eyewitness account. And so he says this took place six days before the Passover. Like, he's helping us understand the exact timetable in which this story, the anointing of Jesus in Bethany, took place. And second, the Holy Spirit placed the, the scripture in this way through the, the authorship, the leading of Mark. And so we look at this and we say, hey, this makes sense. There's no contradictions here. And we also see that, man, we can trust the Holy Spirit in the way that he has governed for the scripture to be placed and written. With that being said, let's look at what's going on here. We know that Jesus is in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now, why is Bethany important? Uh, you would have noticed that you know, they, were, they were at the temple in Mark 13, we saw last week. Then as they move you know, kind of east, they're going down in the Kindred Valley, up to the Mount of Olives, and then kind of coming southeast, you've got Bethany right there. Now, Bethany was a place that Jesus stayed this whole week of you know, Holy Week, Passover week. And it's important because some of Jesus's closest friends lived in Bethany. Uh, one of the greatest miracles that Jesus performed, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, took place in the town of Bethany. Now, who lived in Bethany? It was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, that's important because in John's account, he will tell us that this was Mary, whereas Mark just tells us this was a woman. Um, you know, Mark is moving fast, right? He's like, if I don't have to say that detail, I'm not going to say it. Like, he's just going to, he's keep going. Like, he's a fast writer and, you know, says immediately again and again. And so here, you know, he's saying there's this woman that did this. But in John's account, he tells us that it was Mary. Now, this is important because we, if, if we know that this is Mary and, you know, we know that in John's account, he says that Mary and Martha were serving, Lazarus was seated there. Uh, we have kind of a, a personality profile of Mary and Martha, don't we? You know, um, I'm reminded of Luke 10, where, you know, Jesus is teaching, then he goes into their home, and what takes place? Uh, Mary is seated at the feet of Jesus, and Martha, she's serving, she's hosting, she's busy with everything that's going on. And Jesus just says, hey, Martha, like, don't, don't be worried about all that stuff, don't be stressed about all that stuff, come, come sit with me, come sit with the rest of us, and, and hear what I have to say. Um, not only that, we, we see in, you know, the story of the death of Lazarus, where, you know, Jesus hears about Lazarus being sick, and then he's walking into the town of Bethany four days later, and what happens? Martha meets him before he even fully gets into town. And the first thing that she says is, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. 
And, you know, she's like talking to him. They're like talking the whole way there. And Mary, she's, she's back at the house. And so, I mean, Martha, she's acknowledging who Jesus is. She acknowledges that he could have done something, um, even that she believes that he's the Messiah. And at the same time, she's like, okay, you know, like, like I, I wish that you would have been here. And then he calls Mary later, and then she comes out of the house to him, and she just says, Jesus, I, I wish that you would have been here. And, and she begins to weep. They're weeping. And Jesus is, you know, begins to weep with them. And then he, he calls Lazarus out of the tomb from the dead, and then he lives. Now, I say all of this uh, with a little bit of background here so that you know that this act of Mary is not just something that is, you know, uh, something she's doing as a cultural practice to honor a guest. No, she's well acquainted with who Jesus is. Like, she understands that, that he is the Son of God, that she, she knows who he is, she knows what he's taught whenever she comes and, and makes this act of worship toward him. Now, from, from John's account, we, we can, you know, uh, know that this is Mary. We're told that Mary and Martha are serving. And then Matthew and Mark tell us that this is taking place at Simon the leper's house. That's an important detail that we see right there in verse 3. Now, uh, some people think maybe Simon is, you know, Mary and Martha's dad. Well, we don't really know. Um, the, the pieces would make sense if that was the case. Here's what we do know. He's called Simon the leper. And as far as nicknames go, in the first century, that's like the last one you would want. Uh, this would be like, you know, people being like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, Terry Lee, the dangerously contagious Ebola guy, you know? And I would just be like, hey, that was a long time ago. Could we not call me that anymore? Uh, I mean, that's never happened to me, but it would be that kind of thing where, you know, you would be labeled at this as this forever, which is kind of a death sentence to your social life. And so here there's Simon, but he's hosting this dinner party, and you could not do that, uh, you know, by, by religious law during that time if you had leprosy. And so what we know is that this is, in reality, Simon the former leper, Simon the healed leper, maybe Simon the miraculously healed leper. We know that Jesus again and again places his hands on lepers and heals them, completely cures them of their disease. And so is it the case that this is a man who has been healed by Jesus, who is eager to host Jesus because he knows what, what he's done? Well, we certainly know it wouldn't be out of character for Jesus to do that. Uh, I mean, Jesus has done that in our own lives perhaps not healed from leprosy, but delivered from sin, chains of addiction broken, anxiety replaced with peace. This is what Jesus does. He brings restoration through his presence. And so here we, we picture the scene. It's Jesus' disciples. It's Lazarus, Simon, and Mary, and Martha. And we can almost imagine that Martha is asking for the third time if anybody needed a drink refill. And they're like, no, we're good. And then you hear this glass shatter somewhere. And you're like, what is going on? And then this smell of perfume, just strong perfume, replaces the scent of the food right in front of them. And then, and then Mary comes in with this pound of, of just costly perfume that was in a, a nice glass jar, uh, this alabaster, alabaster jar, and it's, it's broken, and not in a way that it could ever be used again. Right? This, is, this is a one-time use kind of ordeal. And, and she's walking in, and everybody kind of grows silent as they see her walking forward, wondering what she's about to do. 
And then she walks straight to Jesus as he's reclined at the table, kind of with his elbow propped back as, as people sat on lower tables during that time. And she just begins to pour it on his head. And some people are confused. Some people in the room begin to mumble. But in that moment, she is declaring that Jesus is of great worth. And for her, something like that, most likely a family heirloom, most likely the most important, costly thing that she had to her name. She said, I'm pouring this out upon Jesus because he is worthy to be worshiped. And what happens? Well, we we see that some of the disciples are indignant as she pours out this very costly perfume. They estimate that it could be worth 300 denarii. Now, how much would 300 denarii be worth? Well, a, a denarius is, you know, one day's wage. And so if you're, you know, if you just kind of do the math with what uh, a day's wage would be during this time and, you know, the number of days that somebody works in a year, it's like, this was probably in our time like forty to $70,000 worth of perfume that she just poured out upon Jesus. Like not like a, like a little spritz, but like a 16 ounce, like think of like a, a full-size water bottle and she's just poured it upon Jesus, runs down his hairs, you know, gets on his feet, like, and she pours it upon Jesus as an act of worship. And yet some that were present said, this is a waste. Like, this is a waste that you would use this in such a way. Verse 4, asking, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now, this is here in Mark's gospel, accredited to the disciples, those that were present. But in, in John's gospel, he actually says that uh, this was something that, that Judas said. And then he give us, gives us a little point of clarification because Judas was the treasurer of the disciples. In John 12, 6, John discredits uh, Judas's concern for the poor in saying Ju- Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so here he says, well, this is excessive, right? Because, I mean, Jesus isn't really worth this in effect. I mean, really, we need to sell this and put it into the money bag so that we can use it. But then watch the way that Jesus responds. He, he corrects Judas or, or the other disciples that might be thinking the same thing in the moment. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 15, 11 in, in saying, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Here's the quote from Deuteronomy 15, 11, for you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them, end quote, but you will not always have me with you. Now, what is he saying here? He, he's not being indifferent toward the poor. He's not saying that it's not important to care for the poor. You read the teachings of Jesus, and you see that uh, Jesus has great concern for the poor. Uh, that's why we as a church care for the poor. It's why each week we say, hey, if there's a need or you know somebody in a need, grab a Kroger gift card from the back table, no questions asked. This is why we seek to relieve the burdens of you know, financial pressure from people. Uh, Jesus is not saying don't make a priority out of the needs of people. What he is saying here is, I'm about to do something by being dead and then buried and raised again that will be the greatest thing that could be done for any person. The poor, the rich, the down and out, the up and out. I'm about to do something that will change the whole world. I'm about to die for the sins of man. 
you will always have the poor with you. There will always be opportunities for you to, to give money to the poor and to care for those in need. Around this time in the Passover, right before Passover took place, uh, it was common practice for them to give to the poor. He's saying you're always going to have the opportunity to give to the poor, but you will not always have the opportunity to anoint me before my burial. Now, the question is, we, we're not sure if, if she knew that she was anointing him for his burial. We almost wonder, I mean, and think she couldn't have, have fully known what was taking place here. And yet Christ knew. Uh, Christ knew that, you know, he was about to be crucified. This was preparing him for his burial. If you, if you remember what happens on Resurrection Sunday, the women come with the spices and ointments to, you know, to really give him uh, a burial in a way that maybe they couldn't have uh, with him dying on, you know, kind of the eve of the Sabbath day and them having to refrain from work. And so here he's saying, I am being anointed for my burial for what is about to take place. He honors her sacrifice so much so that he says in verse nine, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. In Mark's account, she's unnamed, right? We know her as Mary because we've, we've been able to cross-reference a little bit. But, but Jesus is saying here, what might have made some indignant, what might be overlooked as excessive by others, will be a testimony to the whole world as to how worthy I am to be worshiped. He, he says that, he, he makes this global proclamation of the impact that the gospel will have by saying her story will be told throughout the whole world. And it has been. Every time we read this passage of Scripture or someone opens a Bible to Mark 14, the promise of Jesus from this page is fulfilled. And we're reminded of her work. I think there is some application here for us. That as Christians, as those who serve, as those who love, as those who give, as those who sacrificed, sacrificed to worship the Lord, we might be unknown by the world, might be unnamed by any, you know, extravagant way of, of being an, uh, someone who has influence, and yet to be known by God, to be treasured by Christ as his own is a beautiful thing. I think Mary gives us some traits of those that worship Jesus. First, they desire to be with Jesus. She wants to be in the presence of Jesus. A book that I recently read that I would highly recommend is uh, a book written by Donald Whitney. And uh, he gives 10 questions to diagnose your spiritual health. And the very first one is that you desire the presence of God. And how do I know that I'm spiritually healthy? Do you, do you long to be in the presence of God? Do you want to know God more? Whenever I think about this, I'm reminded of the quote from St. Augustine. Whenever he so aptly put the human condition in this way, God, our hearts are restless and they will not find rest until they rest in thee. Our hearts are restless. And until they come to know the Father through the Son, they will be restless. But they find their rest in him. And it's not just like a, like a one single moment, no, we're satisfied for good because we walked an aisle or made a decision. No, this creates a thirst in us to long for God. There's a prayer from A.W. Tozer 
that, that perhaps expresses this well. He says, O oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O oh God, the triune God, I want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirsty still. Only Christ can reorient our affections and both satisfy them, but also create this healthy satisfaction that reorients our desires around he who is truly worthy to be worshiped above all. So how do you spend time in the presence of Jesus? Gathering for worship like this, by reading, meditating, and studying God's word, by spending time in prayer, dependent, dependent prayer, prayer for others, quick prayers as, as you're headed into a meeting, and long, uninterrupted prayers with God. Oh, we, we are reminded of the presence of God whenever we spend time in community with other believers, when we're encouraged by them, and when we suffer alongside them as the body of Christ. Do you long for the presence of God? Second, we desire to be with other people who worship Jesus. Don't you see that happening in this dinner party? Like, like I almost wish that I could just like teleport there. And at the same time, think about that. A group of people rescued by Jesus, the central focus is Jesus. And that's the beauty of the Christian community. That, that in life together, we get a glimpse of what it's like to be a people with one another and around Jesus. Third, more concerned about honoring God than other people's opinions. And they're saying this is too costly, this is excessive, they're indignant. And then she, I think, gives us somewhat of a, a precursor to what Paul will say in Galatians. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And do we, do we value the praise of man or do we prioritize the praise of God? Finally, sacrificial generosity. Here, nothing is too costly to give to the Lord. Nothing is too much. Nothing is too excessive for Mary because she understands who he is. And for those who stand on this side of, of Christ's death and resurrection, who experience his daily grace, we know it all the more. J.C. Ryle puts it better than I ever could. He said, a cold heart makes a slow hand when it comes to generosity. But if a man once understands the sinfulness of sin and then the mercy of Christ and dying for him, he will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Christ. He will rather feel, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? He will fear wasting time, talents, money, and affections on the things of this world. He will not be afraid of lavishing them on his Savior. He will fear going into extremes about business, money, politics, or pleasure. But he will not be afraid of doing too much for Christ. May we be those that are marked by no fear of doing too much for Christ. But may we spend our lives to make much of Christ. Third and finally, some will be counterfeit followers of Jesus. We see this here in Judas. He was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad 
and promised to give him money. Why were they so glad? Because they didn't have a plan. And here Judas comes, he's got this plan to betray Jesus. And what do they do? They offer to give him money. It's small, but it's insightful here that the enemy, that Satan would know exactly what would get Judas to break, that perhaps sometimes the enemy knows our idols better than we do. It would be a small thing to betray Jesus, the Son of God, for 30 pieces of silver, most likely the equivalent of like 120 denarii, so less than half of of what Mary had just poured out to worship Jesus, he would take as, as an adequate price for his betrayal that his allegiance could be bought for 30 silver coins, 30 shekels. Exodus 21, 32 actually describes this as the price of purchasing a servant. And it would be the price that Judas would betray the Son of God for. Here we see this contrast in the counterfeit followers of Jesus. And what are those traits? One, that Jesus is useful, but not central. Jesus was a means to an end for Judas. Maybe he wanted the notoriety. Maybe he was hoping that, you know, by, by walking with Jesus, he could get access to the money bag. Maybe he was thinking, all right, you know, I mean, maybe at some point this would materialize and it seems like things are headed downhill and, and 30 pieces of silver would be good enough. I don't know. For you, I think the question is, is Jesus central or is he just useful to you? Would you say if you were to take an honest assessment of your life, you know what, I want Jesus to free me of the guilt and shame of sin, but I still wanna be able to indulge that sin whenever I want. You know, I I want to be in a place where I belong, where people serve me and where I feel really loved, but man, I don't wanna be inconvenienced to love other people like Jesus calls me to. Is Jesus just useful to you or is he central? Because if Jesus is just useful to you, and you don't actually love him, then that is not Christian. And the only person that you're fooling might be yourself, and that would be a dangerous place to be. And so I wanna plead with you, because if there is conviction right now, it is a conviction that I can't create. And if there is conviction right now, then there is great mercy for you to turn in this moment and to receive the grace of God. I'm not trying to heap shame on you. I'm trying to draw you to repentance so that you will experience the steadfast love of God towards sinners in which we all are. Second, they are not who they appear to be. It is so dangerous to live a duplicitous life, to portray one thing and and to live another. Judas here is, is a tragic example of that. And if that's you, I would say talk to God. Talk to a friend. We know that, that there would be others who would run from Christ. Peter, what a perfect example of one who would deny Christ and yet respond very differently. That he would return to Christ in repentance. That he would come to Christ asking for forgiveness So that if you're one who would say, I'm an enemy of Jesus, that that today you would become a friend, receive his sacrifice for you. If you're one who worships Jesus, that you would be reminded of the great worth of knowing Christ. And if you're one who is a counterfeit follower of Jesus, that that would not pacify your heart, but that you would say, I will not leave here today until I fully belong to Christ that the things that I have said with my mouth would be supported by the disposition of my heart. 
You see, Christ has poured himself out for us. Christ is that Passover lamb. Christ has done everything needed that we might be redeemed. And because of that, Jesus, he is worthy of our worship. Let's pray.